Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is a special one as we completely scrapped the normal interview format and had a fun water cooler discussion with two of the brightest and most transparent minds in the industry at Roy Bahad at Bloomberg Beta and Matt Conwell of Rare Breed Ventures. We had a great time talking about all of the challenges and opportunities that exist in venture today. Specifically in this episode, we discuss Rare Breed's unique 506C driven public fundraise, the concept of seeding emerging managers, why GP commit as a percentage of a fund is outdated as a measure of GP alignment, and what they see as the immediate future of tech and venture. Now, without further ado, let's get into the episode to hear all of this and more. Mac and Roy, so great to have you guys on the show. Great to be here. Yeah, fun. I'm happy this came together. I love it when a Twitter plan comes together. I've been super pumped about this episode, both because I love talking about emerging manager and fun ones, but you guys are two of the most transparent people in the universe, really for the benefit of the ecosystem. And a lot of people know who you guys are, but I want to start with you, Mac. You launched Rare Breed, the fundraise recently. Tell us a little bit about the fund and the the ethos. Yeah, so Rare Breed, we're raising a $10 million pre-seed to seed fund. Um, Really, our sweet spot is anything sub 10 million post money valuations. Um, we are doing it under 506C, so I can publicly disclose and talk about it. So you can ask me anything and I can answer anything. At this point, we've uh, soft circled uh, about half of the 10 million already. Uh, we're now starting to send out subscription docs and get people to put money into the fund. I'm um, talking about the ethos. We're, I'm really looking to invest in companies primarily outside of the major tech hubs. So outside of Silicon Valley, New York and Massachusetts, we will invest in those areas opportunistically, but that's not where the bulk of the deal flow will come from. Um, and looking to be the first or one of the first investors into every company we invest in. Um, target check size of 250000 which is a little bit larger than what you typically see at Pre-Seed, meaning that we're going to have a slightly more concentrated portfolio. So looking to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 24 to maybe 30 companies in total. And because we invest so early, we are industry agnostic. Um, we don't do life sciences because like, not the skill set. You know, I don't know how to evaluate a therapeutic. I'll do just about anything else. But um, even though we go really early, um, we do look for two key things, right? So if it's a software tech-enabled company, we'd like to see a clearly repeatable or unique customer acquisition strategy. And if it's a physical product, we typically like physical products and consumer markets that have lacked innovation over the last decade or so, 10 years or plus. Um, because those two founders tend to be out-of-the-box thinkers and out-of-the-box problem solvers. And that's what we define as a rare breed entrepreneur. Well, that's a great overview, Mac, and I do want to get into the fundraise, but what really struck me about your fundraise in particular is that you decided to go down the 506C path where most managers go down the traditional 506B, but you didn't go down the rolling fund route. Tell us a little bit about what led to that decision. A lot of this just has to coincide with the fact that when I started soft circling money and thinking about raising a fund was around the same time I started to become more active on Twitter. So from June to now, I've gone from 2,500 followers to 19,000. And within that, I saw, a, I saw a lot of value out of the community I was building on Twitter. Um, and so Angelus came out with their rolling fund and how the GPs could publicly disclose about their fundraise. And I thought that was really interesting. And that would allow me to harness the power that I've created on Twitter. But then when you start to dive into it, the way rolling funds do their LP returns is kind of, it's a little weird. There's a lot of intricacies to it. And what bothered me was a lot of my earliest LPs or earliest supporters were people who've been supporters of mine for like the last 10 years, right? They've seen my journey 
from uh, a software developer to an entrepreneur to now being an investor and now wanting to be LPs, I wanted to make sure that they got the upside of every company I invested in out of fund one, not just based off of some amount of quarters they invested in. And so I decided, you know, not to do the the rolling fund, but then I took a step back and I looked at it and I was like, why are rolling funds so cool? Because you can publicly solicit. It almost feels like a crowdfund because you can just go to a website and click a button to subscribe and then you get access to capital very quickly, right? You don't have these traditional closes. You can get your access to the, the first quarter of money right away. And when I looked at it, none of those had to do with the actual rolling part. They were all kind of just technological and front-facing, but all the issues that I had with it were structural. So I said, okay, let's remove the structural part and just do the front-facing part. And so I said, well, you can just do that on the traditional fund. And so me and my team kind of came together, like, how would we set this up? And so we said, okay, well, if we want to be able to publicly disclose, all it is is 506C, okay, bam. The downside on that is every investor must be an accredited investor. I don't have the option of having up to 35 unaccredited investors. And that means that everybody, every LP that comes into the fund has to go through a, a KYC process. Well, most funds do that anyway. That really wasn't that much of a downside, so we could do that. Um, having a website to come up and give people access to our dots. At first, we thought we were going to have to figure out a way to code it so people filled out a form and then we would take the inputs and you know, dynamically fill out a PDF file that people could then digitally sign. But luckily, um, Carta, who we use for our back, for our back office, um, they have a partnership with a product called Anduin. And so what Anduin does is they take subscription docs specifically and turn them into a guided signature process where all the fields are dynamic. That fit that part perfectly. And then the last piece was how do we get access to the, to the capital right away? And that one was a little tricky. And so when we talked to Carta, they basically said, you know, we can't do it. We could do it so that whenever some an LP signs up to put money in the fund, we could send them for money right away. But it'd be easier for us to manage it if we just did a, a close every Friday. And we said, cool, we'll do weekly closes. So every week as a pool of LPs come in, we close on those LPs that Friday and we can get access to that, to that money right away, which gives us a little bit more flexibility and gives us access to it. And the way we handle this, we draw the money down into an escrow and then we pull the money from the escrow as we make investment, right? Um, so that's kind of the way we set it up. Thanks, Mac, for sharing that. There's a lot to unbundle there. And I know a lot of the listeners here are considering raising a fund, either using the rolling fund structure or at the very least thinking about 506C as a provision to allow them to publicly solicit. And we'll get into that during the show. But turning to you, Roy, for a minute, Tell us a little bit about how you work with Fund One managers specifically, and maybe take us back to when you met Mac. So first of all, I just want to say, if there are people out there who are looking to invest in um, funds as a way of A, getting great LP returns, and B, learning about the startup ecosystem, which is where a lot of Fund One LPs do, Hard to imagine you could do much better than backing Mac. Um, and I'll dissect why I think that in a second. And we could talk about our experiences. And I'll use my view on that to explain how I see the ecosystem. So, you know, I was a founder. I would meet with VCs all the time, you know, raising money, whatever. And I had this feeling of like, man, these guys, like some of the stuff they do, I just don't understand why they do it. So maybe I just don't get it. And some of it is like, hmm, maybe they suck at their jobs. 
And, uh, and you know, one example of that is a lot of them were very closed about information in ways that just seemed harmful to them. So, for example, like you'd beg to get a meeting with somebody, go get in your car and drive down the 280 or the 101 and go to Sand Hill Road, sit there. And in 30 seconds, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, this person took this meeting because they felt obligated. And we're a complete mismatch for the strategy of their fund. I was like, why didn't it just make it easy for me to look at a website and see that? And so when we started Bloomberg Beta, part of our idea was let's just try to do things the way that we as founders would wish they had been done. And, you know, a lot of funds then were saying, oh, like serve the founder as the customer. But like then you actually talk to them and they, the GP would be like, yeah, sorry, I can't talk. I'm in Bali. And it's like, OK, it doesn't sound sounds like marketing to me. And we're like, what if we treated it as more than marketing? We were just religious about it. And transparency was a big part of that, because I think transparency, while it's very time consuming and takes effort and you expose risk, like I remember before we published our first version of our website, which is, as you know, I think, you know, is what was once upon a time, the internal operating manual for our fund, and it just redirect to a GitHub repository. You know, we had people you know, even on our team being like, wait, we, 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 hold on, we're going to disclose the average valuation? Like what? Like that could hurt us in negotiations. And, you know, the risks were real risks. And so we went out to go do it. And I think what this reflects is a mentality that, and this will zero into how we think about fund ones, that, you know what, starting a fund is actually no different than starting any other business on one level, which is you're starting a company that's competitive. It has a product. Its product is investments. Um, you know, you can choose who you see as your customer. There are definitely some firms that choose to see the LP as their customer. We choose to see our LP as a supplier of capital and a business partner. And obviously there are many groups internally at Bloomberg who we could talk to about technology trends and we have therefore a client-like relationship with them. But our customer is founders, like our primary customer is founders. And when you start thinking that way, you realize, okay, well, why are VC funds set up in the way they are? And a lot of it has to do with the regulatory history. Like, why are VC funds so closed off? A lot of it is because private equity funds were very closed off. Um, and so they just adopted the habit. And when we see fund ones, what we see is businesses that create a super normal return because fund ones tend to outperform. You probably know the data on that, Samir, um, much better than I do. And then it's like, well, okay, well, why aren't people more people backing fund ones? And part of it is they're just not equipped to assess them because you know, what do you have in a fund one? You're effectively, for mo almost all funds, you're backing somebody's taste. And it's like, okay, well, how well do I need to know somebody to back their taste? And, you know, Mac was describing some of these people he's had along the way with him in um, relationships, of, like longstanding working relationships. So of course, those people are in a position to back his taste because they know him and they trust him and they have a feel for it. And by the way, very parallel to the friends and family round for an early stage company where it's like, okay, you're betting on the founder. Well, who's best position to assess the founder? Not some professional founder assessor who's going to sit there and look into the person's eyes and be like, I just know. You know, I remember I think somebody affiliated with YC once said like, I just meet a founder and I just know. It's like that sounds terrifying to me because I think what we know about human judgment is a that introduces lots of biases and you know by the way enter racism sexism like you know all kinds of biases come on we can't possibly be that good at that and so what we said for bloomberg beta is wait a minute maybe there's a chance for some super normal return here for us as an investor if we said there are startups out there and those startups happen to have the business model of venture capital fund but if we can invest in them 
in a way that makes sense for us, maybe we can produce super normal returns. So then, uh, you know, we started like looking seriously at doing that. And we realized two things. One is investing in a fund is actually not the same as investing in a company in the sense that you're just investing in one product that they will have for a few years. That company, the firm, will exist, like the distinction between a fund and a firm, that firm will exist for a very long time. And we, as long-term backers of founders, we wrote a few LP checks and then like two years later, like, okay, what about fund two? And I'm like, wait a minute, hold on. Like, okay, I guess that's a little like a follow-on financing. Sure, maybe we'll do it. Fund three, it's like, we don't have enough money to keep growing with you. And then the relationship does kind of not end, but it, but you no longer have an active business relationship with them in quite the same way. And so we learned about this practice of seeding, which I'm sure many of your listeners know about, that is mostly something from the hedge fund world, which is confusingly, it's called seeding in our world where we also have seed investments, where people invest in the firm. And an early LP might also invest in the GP or the management company. It's structured in different ways at different times. And the advantage of that is it creates long-term alignment. We're like, oh no, I want to make money when you make money over your whole journey, however long that lasts. And we can get into, you know, the pros and cons of it. And, you know, there's just lots of, it's new in venture, relatively new. Although my understanding is that Sequoia was seeded in this way. There may be some other major firms that were seeded in this way. Um, I don't want to name names because if I picked it up privately, it's not my information to share. And we wanted to explore doing that. And so that's how we think about fund ones is we're looking, we, we do them very rarely, maybe at the clip of like one or two a year. The single biggest issue we run into is, and this is something that we talked with Mac a bunch about, is, okay, now we're investing in your firm. What determines the value of our investment? Well, returns are a big part of it, but actually AUM is the single factor that matters more than any other. And the people who seed hedge funds, when I started talking to them about why don't you do venture, they're like, oh, because the AUM doesn't rise fast enough. If you're like a great seed investor, your fund two is like 15, your fund three is 40, I'm not making up numbers, you know, something like that. And, you know, they're in the world where if like you have great returns for 18 months, you could have a billion dollars under management. So it's just a totally different world. And that's what one thing we're just trying to work through right now. We have invested in seeding arrangements where there is some different strategy that could drive very rapid AUM growth. And the last thing I'll say about it and shut up is I would not seed my own fund, my own firm. <laughs> and the reason is many VCs, I think this is a valid choice, are actually not solving for the economic value of the GP, of their stake or their firm. They're solving for highest returns for LPs and they're solving for playing the role they want to play in the startup ecosystem. Like I like serving very early stage founders. We are day zero investors. We write a half a million to a million dollar check for 10% of a company. It's what we've been doing consistently for years. Future of work has been our focus from day one of our fund. I like that. Is it the thing that makes me the most money I could possibly make? No, it is not. You know, if we wanted to make more money, we'd try to have bigger funds. We'd try to do a lot of other things, but it's the work that I like doing. And I kind of think of it as craftsman work or craftsperson work. It's sort of like, you know, my dad was an architect. Did he try to make the most money he possibly could? No. He liked practicing architecture and he did well, you know, enough, you know, certainly to like provide for our family and, you know, all kinds of things. My mom also did worked. And so we were we were able to have a stable living. You know, he did it out of a practice of the craft. And I think a lot of VCs are like that. So that's a very long winded rant on us and how we do fun ones. But it sort of puts in context how we see it. I'd just say if I had one hundred million dollars and somebody said, what's the best way to deploy this right now? I'd say go start a fund of funds for fund ones. I'd call it first. Yes capital, 
if anybody else already said yes to you, it'd be too late for us. And we would just go out and write meaningful LP checks and seed them, uh, which out of our $75 million vehicle is a struggle. I mean, there's a lot of great insight and there's a lot to unpack there. You're right in saying that in the hedge fund world, we've seen seeding as a typical practice, very rarely in venture, although we have seen more venture funds strategically invest in fund ones and fund twos as a way to generate deal flow. But that leads me to the general fundraising world. And we've seen this massive increase in the number of fund ones over the last few years. And Mac, you're going through this right now. Tell us a little bit about how the fundraise is going. You've raised money as an entrepreneur in the past. How is this different? It's really not much different for me because the first time I raised funding as an entrepreneur, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had a limited network and I was just trying to figure my way through it, right? And somehow along the way, I figured it out. Well, I'm finding out as as a GP starting my own fund, like experiencing the same thing, right? Like I've never had to raise money for a fund and my personal network of people who could be LPs was limited. So I kind of had to fumble my way through and figure it out, right? Like um, Twitter was a gigantic help and a really big boost for me that it allowed me, it was a combination of things, right? It's, I was growing an audience in Twitter at the same time where everybody was in the house because of the pandemic around us. And so I was able to have meetings with people in very rapid succession in a very short amount of time. You know, I told people from the time of from June to September, I had over 1,100 meetings. It's really close to 1,200 meetings, right? That's doing like 20 to 24 meetings a day. So one of the reasons I think that you are such a great bet for somebody who cares about LP returns is I talk to other fund one managers and I see the things that are distinctive. One of them is a lot of people have big Twitter presences that they built sort of doing something else and they want to convert that into being a fund manager. It's obviously not enough. You said intentionally, I'm going to go out and try to do this. It's a strategy. And then man, like you just made it look easy getting to that followership and you're still growing. And I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was intentional. And by the way, side note, we'd love to unpack how you thought about offering value to the community to do that. But the thing I'm curious about, the other thing is you sound, and maybe this is because you did so many meetings, in a lot of ways like an LP, where like you can describe allocation and strategy and think in terms of how the capital-seeking returns things. If you had to score now where you are in terms of like, imagine um, another Mac, somebody like you going out and raising, or the typical first-time GP, what are the things where you're like, okay, now I now that I've done 1,200 meetings, which that is fucking crazy, pardon my French. Like I heard Charles Hudson once told me he did 300 LP meetings, and I was like, oh my God, that's nuts. And he's like, no, 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 actually that's typical, maybe a little much, but typical. And this is crazy, it's blowing my mind. What do you feel like you've figured out versus what do you still feel like you're trying to figure out compared to other kind of fund one GPs? I've figured out my voice and what my brand is and, and what the value of that is. Um, I'm still learning the fundraising process though, right? Like, so I figured out what's unique and I figured out what's unique about me compared to other first time GPs and other GPs in general. And I figured out how to leverage that when speaking to potential LBs. I've also figured out that there's so many people out here in this world that are considered accredited investors. That most people don't that most people don't think of. I will say within our LP base, there's a good ten or fifteen folks where we would be their first ever LP check. We're we're the first exposure they've ever had. But to your point, I I, I now also have a community of emerging GPs who are following me and who I'm part of, and I can tell the difference, right? I can tell like 
when the emerging GP is just getting started or when they haven't really thought through their portfolio construction or when they have. I guess the, the, the biggest thing is just like really understanding what works well for me, especially when it comes to pitching, right? So like I, I had a conversation earlier today where I was part of a panel where it was really a group of us pitching to a group of LPs. And as part of that, my two counterparts used decks and they asked us if you have a presentation, send it to us. I didn't send the presentation because I've never actually pitched anybody with a deck. And so I was going to stick with what, what works well for me. And one thing, and this is a piece of advice I'll give the GPs who are listening, is that while I was raising, one of the things that I do and I do well naturally is I'm a naturally good storyteller. Storytelling is what I do. And what I found was being able to tell a story of a company that I've supported and that I worked with and, and about the funding journey is not only impactful, but it's something that apparently not enough GPs actually do when they're fundraising. They kind of throw up their deck and kind of just go through the motions and talk through all the numbers and the structure. It's like, yeah, everybody has very similar numbers and structures and little tweaks here and there. But what really makes you different as a GP, I've been able to figure out how to get that out when I talk to people. You know, it's it's really interesting that you bring that up. And I've said this before publicly, that storytelling is such a big part of being a VC. Because what people are really looking at is, can you compel entrepreneurs to want to work with you? and are you offering something that is clearly articulated in what you add as a VC from a value add perspective? It's funny that you bring up 1,100 meetings, which is just absolutely incredible in such short amount of time. And I had both Charles Hudson and actually Elizabeth Yin on the uh, podcast before. And Elizabeth actually mentioned 700 LPs. And I remember in my Twitter mentions, everyone's like, oh my God, 700 different LPs. How did you actually do that? Part of this is like logistically, you can do more meetings right now, given that we're in a Zoom environment. But I suspect that you get a lot of feedback. And if you're having 24 meetings a day, your head can spin on what feedback do you take? How do you refine your pitch? Were there times during the whole thing where you're just saying, you know, the LP feedback that I'm getting, one is probably all over the place. Some people are saying X, some people are saying Y. How do you distill that down into refining and improving your pitch and thesis? The benefit I have going through this process is I've gone through the same thing as a founder, right? Like as a founder, if you ever go through an accelerator, like the last month of the accelerator is nothing but pitch practice, right? And every day you're getting feedback from some different person telling you how you need to change your pitch or what you need to do different. And over time, you just find the notes within the pitch that resonate and you just realize it's not going to resonate with everybody. So you try to hit the things that resonate with the majority of people and stick with that. When I talk about, you know, my fundraising, when I tell my story, I talk about that I had two startups, one had an exit and one failed. You know, I've had people tell me, don't talk about the failure. You know, people don't like someone who's gone through a failure. But for me, it's just part of my story. It's part of my authenticity, right? The fact that I failed, I learned a lot and it helps me also better evaluate entrepreneurs because I know the arrogance I felt when I failed. And I know the things that I didn't look out for because I just knew everything, right? I can now see that and found it, right? I also know the humbleness I had when I succeeded and all the things that I did wrong and how I was able to work through those. And so even though I have gotten the feedback, don't talk about your failures, nobody wants to hear about a failure. I don't view it that way. I talk about it, it's, for me, it's a learning, right? And so if you're an LP and you don't consider that, that's okay. You know, I, I might not be the right, you know, investment for you. Granted, I'm probably the right investment for any LP because I'm a return to capital, but that's just in my estimation. When you say that, I hear, as you're taking a note, I hear the 
it's a search, not a sell process. And you said you're kind of going to the thing that works for the majority of LPs. I kind of wish we lived in a world where you could say it the way you wish to say it and live with the subset of LPs for whom it is actually a match. And I think one of the challenges here is that the current world of fund one fundraising, and maybe to some broader extent, LP fundraising. I mean, look, let's be honest. We have one LP. I've written more LP checks than I have taken LP pitch meetings to pitch anything out. So um, I know one side of this and not the other. So who, who knows? But I talk to a lot of LPs. They often call me, uh, they often call me to get references on founders because they know I'm not like going to be pitching them. Um, but I think a thing that happens is there is so much scarcity or perceived scarcity of how many LPs there are who are willing to support you that you kind of can't just be like, well, I'll just shrug it off and find the people who I find. And I don't know, I guess I'm just raising the question of how true is that? You know, you are breaking new people into being LPs who have never been LPs before. I think that actually happens with almost every fund one I've ever seen. And that's both good in the sense you're drawing people in and weird and bad in the sense it's a sign that there's a gap in the market. It's one of the reasons I just say I'm really into this idea of like YC for VCs kind of model that, you know, AngelList has done some stuff, Operator has done some stuff, Recast, there's a bunch of folks out there who have been doing um, this kind of like multi, um, Samir, the media you do is an example of this. O OpenLP is an example of this. But I'm curious, Mac, to what extent, you know, maybe it raises another question. And I, actually, I asked both of you because I'm just curious to what extent you guys feel like a fund one founder can say, you know what, I'm just going to do things my way and search for the people who are a match versus do they feel prey to the fact that there's just scarce dollars out there will willing to write LP checks? Roy, I'll take a crack at that question. And I do think that there's a perception that capital is much more scarce than it is. There's a lot of liquidity sloshing around right now within the uh, non-institutional market. There's 200,000 ultra high net worth individuals that have investable assets over $50 million. There's 11,000 global family offices. And given the yield environment right now, people are desperate to find places to place capital and earn alpha type of returns. The challenge though for GP is discovering these people and being discovered. And because of that, what ends up happening is GPs are forced to go down the path of telling a story that is most likely to resonate with the masses versus you know having highly relevant conversations with those that are gonna be the best fit. But Mac, you know, curiously from your perspective, when you talk to all of these LPs, and you, you mentioned this earlier, there's a subsection that is very much, hey, I'm learning venture first time. But for the ones that have invested in venture before, what are the type of questions that you've been asked consistently? And even maybe going back to when you talked to Roy, what are the pressure points that every single fund one manager should know that is going to be asked during that fundraise? I mean, everybody wants to know about your portfolio construction and why you've said it the way you have. I've consistently get the question of, are you sure you want to do just that few investments? You know, a pre-seed, you probably should be doing more. I get that a lot. I get the question a lot around deal sourcing. How do I handle my deal sourcing or where do I get my sources? Or how do I handle the abundance of inbound that I get because my Twitter presence is so strong? Um, and, I'm, and I'm very much cold intros. You can, you, you can just directly email me. Um, there's a caveat to that, though. I tell founders, like, just because I take cold intros doesn't mean I'm going to read every single one. Like, you know. If I get 100 intros in a day, I'm going to read like 10 of them. So just, just keep that in mind. Like, yes, you can email me. There's a chance I'm going to read it. I'm not going to get to every single one if I'm inundated, right? So like, 
there is some give and take there. And I think founders get confused when we talk about cold intros or being able to sing or saying that we read cold intros. So I, I get pressed on that. I get pressed on how I'm able to handle all the work that comes to running a fund as a solo GP. Lucky for me, I have I have a team. Um, I am the only one who's full time on the team currently, but I do have people that work with me who you know I can delegate work out to. Um, so some of the questions I get are very specific to being a solo GP. Um, I also get oddly, not oddly enough, but everybody asks me about my diversity uh, mandate, which I actually don't have. Like I don't have a diversity mandate or initiative within my fund. What a messed up thing that like you're a black GP. And so people are like, you must have a diversity mandate. It, it, it makes me think one, one of the firms that I've really admired in what they do on that is um, on, not on diversity. I don't know anything about what they do on diversity, but just how they handle a related issue is I heard a firm in the Midwest say that a lot of LPs were like, oh, you're the Midwestern firm. They're like, no, we have a no asterisks fundraising strategy, meaning we're just here to get the best returns. And it's like, well, why would I back? Why would Mac back a black founder or a founder from an underrepresented background is because that's the winning strategy. And by the way, I feel like there are many reasons to support underrepresented, underestimated, more diverse founders. The single best one is it's the winning strategy. To that point, Roy, as you're looking at these fun ones and you look at Mac and you say, okay, this is an opportunity to really generate alpha. You know, Mac has all these characteristics, but when you look at these fun one managers and you're talking to them, you know, Mac brought up some things that he gets asked. I'm sure you asked him the same questions about portfolio construction and how do you run a firm? What do you really look for? I mean, what are the things that you think make an exceptional GP? And Mac can correct me if this is wrong. We actually didn't talk about that that much at all. Because like, okay, I get it. That's a valid strategy. But once I'm down that path of like, call it the variation, the settings on the graphic equalizer of like portfolio construction and all that stuff, that's really about LP returns. And LP returns is a factor, but not my main factor. I'm asking about the firm as opposed to the fund. So I remember asking like, what does fund two look like? These questions that are like things that, you don't really talk. How fast can you ramp AUM? You know, uh, uh, questions like that that are more about, I don't know, it's kind of sometimes inappropriate in a first LP conversation to be like, well, and here's what fun five is going to be because it can be a little grandiose. But I need to have some sense of that, just like with a founder of like, well, I ask you your long term, just like with the founder of a startup, I ask you your long term vision and there's sort of a right amount of resolution. And so what I'll say for me is I'm happy to talk about all the LP return stuff because that's part of the support we provide to GPs is helping them fundraise. A lot of that ends up boiling down though to, I can't tell the fucking difference. And here's what I mean by that is like, you have some LP who doesn't really know, and maybe they see some funds. It's like, I don't know, like this guy worked in tech. He's got a Twitter following. He says some things that sound smart. He's got a method for value add, but I really, on many cases, can't pick out that one bird in the flock that is going to break away and be an outlier. And for a lot of LPs, they actually don't need their fund manager to be an outlier. They need them to generate a reasonably good chance of high returns along with the market. And I'm just in a different place. And so I'd say for me, the kinds of conversations I have with fund one GPs just often end up breaking their script. And that's good for me because I can see how they think and what they're like when they're not talking about their talk track they've talked about with a bunch of other people. It's very similar to founders. Like there was this era maybe like six, seven years ago where founders started really professionalizing their first round pitches because like they'd see all this stuff online, venture hacks, and like, you know, they and they'd come in and they'd have their TAM slide and just be ready to go. And one of the things I like to do is like, I want to ingest what they're giving me because they've given it time and thought and it's I want to be respectful. But also I want to talk about stuff they haven't thought about 
because that's the only way I'll know how they'll think about other things they haven't thought about. So that to me is what a conversation looks like. And now there are a lot of folks who honestly, two years ago, before we realized how to think about seeding, I would have met with who now I'm like, I would like to know you as a co-investor and like to be supportive of you, but I just can't get there and on asking to invest in your GP. Let me also just raise one other issue, which is this is awkward stuff. But uh, you know, I think as you guys know, I like to go to the awkward stuff because that's where the juice is, is I've had this conversation with black and other um, GPs from underrepresented backgrounds where I talk about the seating thing. And they're like, you know, a bunch of people are asking for that. And it sounds like it might be predatory. Like, are you trying to take advantage of me by asking for an extra thing because I can't raise money as easily? And I really struggle with this because, A, this is the thing we say to everybody. Um, and I think we've seeded four funds. Maybe I, I think it's four, four firms. And one of them has been led by black GPs and the others have not. But I, I wish I'd begged Charles to, you know, I didn't think of knowing to do that at that time. It just didn't occur to me. Um, and I feel like there's this hard thing of like, well, if I'm willing to write a check that others are unwilling to write, how much value should I get? And I remember I went around to the fund of funds and I was like, do you guys ever, are you guys ever the first yes in a fund? Like your whole business is backing early funds. Like, you mean the first close? I was like, no, 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 the first yes. Like, no, we barely even do fund once. And I was like, okay, well, if somebody's willing to do that, what do you think they ought to get in terms of better terms? Because they're willing to take more risk. And they're like, I don't know, maybe no fees, no carry. I was like, well, that doesn't really work for the fund manager, but sure. And also it doesn't seem like enough to compensate for the big risk. If I'm willing to be the first yes, I should get compensated big. And I feel the same way about founders. With The number one reason we don't invest in companies that we want to invest in is price. We lose on price all the time. I'm like, I'm taking a risk. I want to get paid to take that risk. And I feel the exact same way about fund managers. This question comes up a lot on, you know, if somebody's coming in first and they ask for part of the GP economics or carrier, something that is substantially different from what a normal LP would get. I'm curious from Mac, your perspective. I mean, how would you think about it? You're in the middle of a raise. Somebody asks you for that. What are you looking for? in order to give that, and fundamentally, do you believe in that that model? It's a difficult topic, especially as a Black fund manager. I have heard other Black fund managers talk about how they've gone out to raise and have gotten this kind of offer where they have felt predatory. You know, I see, I, I see that, right? But on the other side, I, I'm in a very different situation because before I started my fundraise, I worked for the state of Maryland for four years. I am not an independently wealthy person. I am not an accredited investor. Like when I stepped out to go raise this fund, I didn't. I only had so much money saved up in the bank, right? So the idea of actually having somebody invest in the GP was actually an idea of me getting some early working capital. And I do know of other funds that have done that. Now, is it ideal? It's not ideal. But would it help me? Hell yeah. Somebody wanting to invest, you know, 200000 or 250000 into the GP or 500000 into the GP, that's going to be helpful for me. Now, will it be hurtful in, you know, fund four? And, you know, I'm, I'm still paying back on that? Yeah, but then I don't know if I get the fund one without their support, right? It's the same thing that we tell founders. You know, I have those conversations with my founders because I back them so early. I'm like, hey, there may come a time when you raise more money and your investor's going to try and push me off the cap table. I need you to protect me. Like, there's only so much I can do in that fight, right? So I need you as the founder to be the one to advocate for me. And in situations where that's popped up, the founders I've worked with have advocated for the firm 
and be like, hey, you know, they were the first to to invest in us and support us. We don't want to just push them off the cap table, right? And so I kind of look at it like that. If you're going to be an early backer, then yeah, I understand giving you a boost. But it is a sensitive topic. You know, I think there's merits to both sides of the argument. Fundamentally, if it is somebody that's helping you while you're in the embryonic stage and really getting you not only off the ground, making that first yes, it seems to reason that there should be some economics that come with it. The other thing that I see, and I, and I wrote a blog about this, and I don't know if you guys read this, but there's this concept of GP interest in the fund and the percentage aligning somehow to how great a fiduciary that GP is going to be for their LPs. And there's some LPs that say, the bigger it is, the more aligned you are. But I also think that it creates barriers for managers like yourself, Mac, and others that are starting first-time funds that are $10 million, where your, your fees each year are $250,000. You're not coming from a wealthy background. And it precludes you from even going down that path. And I know there's a lot of people that can't go because of that GP commit. I'd love to hear your guys' view on this. You nailed it. And I just say it more strongly, which is the idea that percentage of fund size matters is stupid. The thing that matters is percentage of net worth. Like that's the sign of commitment. And I think it comes from this polite world where, well, maybe everybody raising funds was presumed to be rich. And you have this perceived barrier and an actual barrier. Mac talked about his challenges going through it. And I think it particularly hits people from more diverse backgrounds um, because they tend to have less money. And, you know, I remember Tim Armstrong, when he went over to be CEO of AOL or whatever, wrote like a hundred million dollar investment AOL. I'm making up the number. Maybe it's not exactly that. And somebody was like, what an incredible commitment. And I was like, I don't know. That would be like me writing a check for like four grand or something like that, which is like real money. But like, I'm not trying to say that isn't real money, but it's also not like, holy shit, the whole world has changed. It's mostly a sign of Tim Armstrong's wealth than anything else. And, you know, to me, and, and we experienced this, one of our learning efforts in becoming LPs and seeders of funds was we do this program that we back angel investors. It is not a scout program because we're not trying to source their deals. We just think they're good investors and generate good returns. And it's a way for us to empower investors we want to work with. We call it open angels and we co-invest with them. And the way it works is unlike most scout programs, it's like here's a dollar or here's a hundred thousand dollars. You go invest it as you see fit. Ours is we'll invest alongside you on a fixed ratio when your dollars go into ours. And then people are like, well, how do you decide the ratio? And sometimes it's 50 to one and sometimes it's one to one. It's basically, you know, as much as we can talk about it based on the wealth of the person with whom we're co-investing. Because if $500 per investment is significant to you, that works for me. So to me, it is not only is it, you're right, it creates these issues, but it is totally the wrong question. 100% the right question is percentage of net worth, I think. I don't know. That's my view. And I'm, Mac, I'm curious if to what degree you see it that way or not. This is a lot for me because the question from a GP and your GP commit is almost the same thing, I feel, as when founders are asked, how much have you put into a company, right? And so if you're a founder who comes from a community where you can't get friends and family capital, you don't have much capital yourself, and you have a VC tell you where if you can't find somebody to give you 10 to 50K to put in this company, I'm never going to invest in it. That has nothing to do with the company itself or the value of that entrepreneur. And for me as a GP, like I don't have a GP commit for my fund one. Why? Because I couldn't afford it. Now, I, could I afford it if I go off and sell a portion of my GP or if I go get a loan? Sure. Right. But that's not the goal here. And if that's what you're going to use to evaluate me, well, that's fine. 
this you're you're going to miss out, right? Like if you think I'm a good GP, then how much money I can put into fund one doesn't make a difference. If you if you're afraid that I'm not going to work hard enough to make this happen, understand this is my livelihood, right? Like like if my fund one fails, I need to get a new career. I'm not in the process of looking for a new career. Yeah, it's like an assumption of cheating people. Let me also just say, and, and Samir, you may have lots of guidance on this. I believe, and this is maybe me as a, oh, look, I didn't grow up with wealth, but I'm a privileged white man. And this may be me speaking from my my perspective as opposed to reality. But my sense is that this issue around GP commit is mostly perception as opposed to reality in the sense that you can talk your way around it with the right LPs, you can raise against it. Yeah, that's not ideal, but like, sure, I'd also like to be wealthier and not need to raise. Like, I'd like to self-fund my next thing instead of needing other people's money for it. But, you know, I'm not seven feet tall, so that's just not the way the world is right now. And so I'm just curious, Samir and Mac, but whether you agree that this issue is, it is a real issue the issue of like how much you can afford to work without making money and the GP commit. But is it more of a real issue or more of a perception issue that can be managed? And like curious about ways you've seen people manage it. Just so folks listening who are like, I can't start a fund because I'm not blank. Just understand the tradecraft. Like, no, no, no. Here's the real trick of how you do it. Well, there's certainly issues from a structural standpoint when it comes to these mental models of thinking about alignment and associating a certain percentage of GP commit relative to fund size as being, you know, the key driver for alignment. That typically is one, two, or three, sometimes even more percentage of the fund. I don't know that's going to change completely. I do see some LPs thinking about things in a more flexible way. I also see GPs do things to help offset that. And that could be anything from taking a significant amount of the fees up front, maybe three or three and a half percent in year one or using some kind of fee offset to help use before tax dollars to take care of some of those um, early calls. The last thing I do want to ask you guys before we run out of time here is, with the pandemic, it seems like things have actually accelerated within the tech world, both from an investing standpoint, company formation. I'd be curious to hear from you both on what do you think the years ahead will bring us? Are we going to see continued liquidity? Are we going to see more funds? What does that really look like over the next, let's call it three, five, 10 years? Money is cheap right now. And lots of rich people have gotten richer. And that is a weird thing for the world, but a good thing for the flow of money into startups. And so I guess I just believe that it's sort of like we're at the beginning of the writing revolution and like the Gutenberg printing press was invented. And then there's a lot of people publishing pamphlets and then books start getting published. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I see the reason I'm in, one reason I'm in this industry is, yeah, COVID accelerated it, but it's just like we're just going to have steady more and more of the world being this way for the rest of time, more funds, more money, more places, more people, the best of them will keep getting even better. And it's our job to direct like that to me is like a rising tide, you know, uh, ocean tide. And it's our job to like set up the piers and culverts, whatever. I don't even know what words to use about this to guide it in a way that is as productive for the world, as productive for society, as just as remunerative for those of us who want to get paid for it as possible. So uh, yeah, COVID is accelerated, but it's more of a blip. We may have a blip the other direction if money gets expensive again. And look, I'm a grandson of Holocaust survivors. And that grandson of Holocaust survivors to me is always like the world could fall apart at any moment. Be prepared. And COVID didn't 
take everything apart, but it obviously hurt many, many people. I still long-term optimism, but man, could we have three years of darkness on the way there? For sure. And let's try not to fall over when that happens. And what I see and what happened was in the time of COVID, everybody was stuck in their houses and everybody was watching the news all day, every day. Everybody was on their computer. And then George Floyd was killed. And after George Floyd was killed, there was this upcry and uprising of we need to treat black people in America and black people around the globe and people of color better. And that led to how do we treat them better in all industries? And in venture, we saw a lot of venture firms talking about they wanted to support founders of color. We saw folks starting to put together initiatives to support GPs of diverse backgrounds. You know, Alpaca VC, who's an LP in, in Rare Breed Ventures, they put together an initiative like this to invest in five. They ended up investing in six because they found so many incredible diverse uh, GPs to back. And what I'm very acutely aware of is there's going to be an 18 to 24 month cycle where we're going to see an influx of funding to diverse founders and diverse GPs. But that 18 to 24 month influx is going to be fully evaluated 10 years from now. And so that means all these founders and GPs like myself who are getting the opportunity to show the world that we can return capital are going to have to show improve. Otherwise, 10 years from now, when people point back to 2020 as a vintage year, they're going to use this as a, as a marker of like, okay, we did that. How did it work? And so that means GPs in my position and founders of color, where it's not fair that you're going to be the benchmark for this industry, but that's the reality of it. And that is a reality that is not lost. on. And so that's kind of how I view it. It's a really interesting perspective. And look, I, I think there's a lot of tailwinds here. I agree with you, Roy, also that there could be some dark times. I've been through three cycles myself. So at the end of the day, I am incredibly excited about the future of technology and technology investing. You know, I really appreciate you guys both being on the show. This has been fun and informative. I knew it would be. And Mac, really looking forward to chart the course with you on Rare Breed. Yeah, and Samir, I just want to say, you and a few others have been cracking open this very closed church of investing in funds with steady work. That's real value to a lot of people, including me, and I hope many others in the ecosystem. So thank you. Keep doing it. Full disclosure, I'm working with Samir, so I'm looking forward to, court, to charting this course and having you on this journey. I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, we are still currently raising our minimum check size to date is still 10K. So if you're interested in becoming an LP, you can reach out directly to me, Mac at rarebreed.vc, M-A-C at rarebreed.vc. I wish it weren't a conflict for me to invest personally, Mac. Seriously. <laughs> or um, if you could go to rarebreed.vc and there's a button here that says click to become an uh, LP, the minimum will be rising at some point. So get in now before the minimum goes from 10K and goes up. Uh, just got to put that out there. Since I'm 506 C, I can do that. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We hope you really enjoyed this one. To learn more about Mac and Rare Breed Ventures or Roy at Bloomberg Beta, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and review and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 